Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Today, we're going to be uh, looking at the subject of enjoying God. Uh, Really, until we head into Advent, the first Sunday in December, we're just going to kind of do a a number of different uh, teachings. Um, And this one I'm going to kind of pick up from what we were talking about last week on glorifying God. And so today we want to talk about enjoying Him now and forever. So our text is going to be Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, something we've looked at several times the last few weeks. You can follow along on the screens up here. I'll be using the New International Version or uh, on the card that we gave you or in your Bible. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Hear now the words of the sovereign God of joy. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. The word paradox is used to refer to something that at first appearance seems to be untrue, but upon further reflection, it turns out to be deeply true. It appears to be contradictory, but as we examine it more, it actually turns out, rather than being contradictory, to actually be true. And Jesus often used paradox in his teaching. I'm just going to throw up a couple of verses real briefly to help us understand what I'm talking about. In Mark chapter 8, verse 35, Jesus was speaking and he said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. Now this is a paradox because of course you would normally think, well if I want to save my life, I will save it. And if I wanted to lose my life, I would actually lose it. But Jesus says no. On a deeper level, if you try to save your life, that actual act of trying to save it causes you to lose it. And on a much deeper level, if you are willing to lose your life for me and for the gospel, you actually save your life. And another time he said, you you think you're losing it, but you're actually finding it. Another passage in Luke chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, Jesus said, blessed are you when men hate you. Okay, there's a paradox. Because none of us would sign up and say, gee, I, I want some of that where people hate me. Uh, And Jesus says, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Now, if you're listening to Jesus, you're wondering what on earth is he talking about? We think of being blessed when we think people speak well of us. We think we are blessed when we are included, not excluded. And in fact, we usually cry and moan when people abuse and mistreat us. But Jesus says we're supposed to rejoice. But his reason for doing this is because he says, great is your reward in heaven. And by the way, you're being treated just like the prophets were. 
This is normally how it is. So there's a paradox here. What looks initially to be like cursing is actually blessing. One last passage where Jesus does this. In John chapter 12, verse 24, and he's actually speaking about his own death coming up, but he gives us a principle. He says, I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So here we have this paradox again. We would think that the seed dying would be the end. But Jesus says it's not only not the end, it's actually the beginning of multiplication. Instead of being the end and this being death, it's actually the beginning of much greater life. And we all see this. If you plant a garden, you take a seed, you put it in the ground, if it's dead. But then out of that, you get hundreds and hundreds and sometimes thousands of these seeds. These are all paradoxes. Now the reason I'm bringing these up is because some things appear to be false or destructive, but uh, upon further reflection they come out to be true. And this is the way it is in the principle that we ended our series on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation talking about, which is that glory is to be to God alone. And we are to be focused on God. And the question, the paradox that arises is, isn't that destructive to us? I mean, how does that work for me if we're going to give glory to God alone? But we're going to see that, in fact, this is where deep biblical thinkers have reflected and said, no, this is another paradox. Just like if you lose your life, you find it. If you put your focus on God and his glory, if you put your focus on enjoying God and joy to God, what you actually receive is joy for yourself. And so there's a paradox here, and we want to talk about how a God-centered life produces joy for us and how this idea of enjoying God brings the deepest joy to us as human beings. So let's talk about it as we work our way through the text. Now notice here, as we talk about enjoying God, that in our text we're told that joy is centered on God and his glory. I mentioned this briefly in the last week or two. In Romans 5, 2, in our text, it says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So this joy, this rejoicing is centered on God rather than ourselves. Notice Paul does not say, and we rejoice in ourselves. He doesn't even say we rejoice in our own salvation. What he actually says is, we actually rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It is centered on God himself. And this was the great discovery of St. Augustine. In one of the most monumental works in human history, his confessions, Augustine begins the confessions this way. Great are you, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power and your infinite wisdom. So notice he's beginning with the greatness of God. And then he says, human beings, as but a little part of your creation, would praise you. Human beings who bear with them their mortality, the witness of their sin, the witness that you resist the proud, yet they would praise you. So he's saying, notice how small we are, how great you are, but there's something in us that wants to praise you, and notice why. They who are but a part of your creation, you wake us to delight in your praise, for you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So Augustine says, I, I find this thing going on in me that God is great and I am small. And so there's nothing I could do for God, 
but yet there's something inside me that wants to praise God, despite my own mortality, despite my own sin, despite my smallness. There's something in me that goes out towards God. And Augustine says this is because God made us for himself. And so our hearts are restless. They are, they are longing for something else until they find that rest in God. And so Augustine, who had been a restless wanderer, finally found rest when he quit, uh, stopped seeking for himself and turned his focus outward towards God. This is why the Reformation took verses like this. And you remember in the, the famous Westminster Shorter Catechism question one, which we base our question one in our own catechism on. What is the chief end of man? Which is the old way of saying, why did God create humans? What are we here for? What's the final ultimate purpose for us? And it is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper has pointed out accurately, notice it does not say chief ends of man. There's not two ends. There's not two separate goals here. Number one, glorify God. Number two, enjoy. No, it's one end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In fact, Piper is arguing, I think correctly, that you really can understand this by saying to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And that, the, that this is really one purpose, that you and I are made to glorify God and that is the greatest enjoyment which we can find as human beings. And so the scripture would teach us as we talk about joy that joy is centered in God. We have to look towards enjoying God because our joy is centered in God and there's at least three brief reasons. Number one, because God is the beginning, the center, and the end of all creation. Scott began our worship meeting this morning by reading in Romans 11, from him and through him and to him are all things. He's the beginning, the center, and the end. Everything in creation is about God and therefore since we are part of creation, we're created in a way that we are to be God-oriented. Secondly, even more deeply than the rest of creation, we are the image of God. And that means we uniquely have a capacity and a capability greater than the rest of creation to know God, to love God, to glorify God. And so we have a deeper capacity to do that, but what that means is if we're not doing it, we have a deeper capacity for sorrow, a deeper capacity to realize something's not the way it was meant to be. And so God here is, has made us in this way and is telling us that since we are his image, we are created to know, love, and glorify him. And then finally, let me say, because we are the image of God, because this is a God-centered universe, nothing implodes human joy like narcissistic self-focus and self-interest. If you tell me I want to really wipe out my own joy, I would tell you, then just go live a self-centered life this week because nothing will wipe it out like that, okay? Nothing wipes it out because we're in the image of God. And if you think about this, God is triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always overflowed and been oriented in a loving relationship towards one another, and you are made in that image. And if we try to take that and turn our focus in on ourselves, we are literally going against every strand of our DNA, every way we were made, and it implodes our joy. So Narcissus, who was originally, you know, the, the Greek story, you know, that he was the guy and he fell in love with his own reflection in the pool. That was a tale of warning to us. Even pagan Greeks had figured out that destroys your life. It does not create 
your life. I'll come back and mention Narcissus a little bit later. So that's the first reason joy is centered in God and his glory. Second point about joy is it is the fruit of the gospel. Notice in verses 1 and 2. This is what we've been focusing on over the last month, but Paul summarizes the gospel. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, and the therefore is because chapters 1 to 4, where he's laid out the gospel over and over and over again, and therefore, because of this gospel, we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So notice that's his summary of the gospel. You are justified because of grace alone, through the work of Christ alone, which is accessed by faith alone. Paul has set aside your works and mine, and he says that this is the gospel. And notice in verse 2, the fruit of that is he immediately goes on and says, well then, and that's why we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Flowing out of the rich soil of the gospel is to be a life of rejoicing in the glory of God. It is the natural fruit of the gospel. So if you want to sap away and destroy your joy, focus on yourself. But if you want to increase and stir up your own joy, meditate and focus on the gospel. And that will actually produce deep joy. Now, again, there are multiple reasons why this is so. The fruit of the gospel is joy because, first off, the gospel is centered on God, his work, and his glory. As we've been looking at, the gospel's not about you and I other than our problem our sin, the, the way we've messed things up. It is about God and his work and all he has done for us, and we don't even access that by our works, but rather by faith. So since the gospel is God-centered and a God-centered focus in life produces joy, therefore the fruit of the gospel, which is centered on God, is to give joy to you and I. It's the natural overflow and outflow of the gospel. Secondly, However, it's not only because of some intellectual exercise in the gospel. The gospel actually restores our relationship with God. Notice he says, because of this, we have peace with God. Rather than being in a state of war with our creator, rather than being in a state of rebellion against he who is the beginning, the center, and the end of all reality, we are now at peace. We are now in a relationship with him, and that can't help but bring joy because it's what we were made for. Thirdly, the gospel is powerful to remove our objective and our subjective guilt. How many of you know that is guilt good to produce joy? If you said, I want to get joy filled, I'm just going to go and make myself feel really guilty about something. Is that a good way to do it? No, it is not. Guilt in fact, it saps and drains our joy away. But you and I walk around knowing we are objectively guilty before God. And we subjectively feel the guilt of what we've done. But the gospel deals with both our objective guilt and our subjective guilt and therefore removes one of the major barriers to joy. There's nothing like knowing I'm forgiven. And I stand clean and pure before God because of what Jesus has done, not what I have done. And so my standing before God is not based on how good my week has been, but rather how good Jesus' week has been, which I can assure you is always A+. plus. Okay? So it removes that guilt. And if you've ever had, when you thought you were guilty and the guilt got removed, the, that sense of relief 
and release. Oh my, I thought this terrible thing was going to happen, but now I've got joy because I realize something good is happening. That is what the gospel does for us. And then the last thing the gospel does, because of the way the gospel is, are my works included in the gospel? Are, are they part of me getting justified before God? No. See, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. And the gospel frees me from having to labor and use good works to earn God's favor. And so now that I know that I'm accepted by God, my guilt is removed, there is joy from that, I am now able to live a life that is centered on being able to serve others. I can give my works away because God doesn't need them. Jesus has already accomplished everything for me. Well, if we are made in the image of God, who is always a relational being, who is oriented on giving to others, what do you think ought to characterize our lives? See, this is the opposite of a life of self-focus. And I am utterly, radically free to use whatever gifts I've got to serve other people because it's not like I'm thinking, well, if I give it to you, then I don't have enough to give to God. I don't have to give anything to God in the first place. That's already free for me. And I can then live and serve others. And the fruit of that serving others is joy. At every turn, the gospel produces joy. The third thing Paul tells us about joy in this text is that joy then endures through suffering. You notice, isn't it interesting? Paul's talking about joy, and then he immediately brings up suffering because that's the world in which we live. And so he says in verse 3, not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Joy continues on even in suffering. In other words, joy is not dependent on my circumstances. It is not that if I'm focused on God and if I have responded to the gospel, there is joy as long as things are good. Because are things always good? They're simply not. There is suffering in this age. And you don't, there is no amount of faith to get you out of that. There is no amount of being filled with the Spirit to get you out of that. This life has suffering. And in fact, it's going to end in the ultimate suffering, which is death. But Paul says, in spite of that, there is joy. And this is a major difference between what our culture thinks of as happiness and true joy as found in Scripture. Happiness is dependent upon circumstances. Joy is dependent upon God, not circumstances. Some of you remember, I've told the story before as we head up every year, I can remember this and feel guilty for a moment, uh, that the Thanksgiving where the Cowboys were playing and uh, at the end of the game, Leon Lett pulled the biggest bonehead move in the history of the National Football League and cost the Cowboys a game. And I went from immediate joy to immediate despair. And my wife encouraged me that I was showing a lack of Christian character in front of my children and told me, you are not going to let the Cowboys losing. You're not gonna let this ruin our Thanksgiving. And I, in my most sanctified moment, said, I didn't ruin our Thanksgiving. Leon Lett ruined our Thanksgiving. <laughs> And Leon Lett cringed and died a little bit inside that day, I assure you. Um, see, that, that's the way our world approaches happiness. I'm happy if my team wins. 
And if they don't, you don't want to be around me. Okay? I'm happy if everybody's treating me well. But you see, that this is where the parish is. None of that matters. Joy says, you can't take it away from me because it's not dependent on you or the circumstances. It's dependent on God. And so for this reason, joy endures through suffering because, first, our joy is found in God and he doesn't change. Your circumstances may change tomorrow. Every, everybody in here eventually is going to get some medical report they don't like. You're going to hear something at work you don't like. There's going to be a relational conflict you had not planned on. Your circumstances will change like shifting shadows, and so do mine. But here's good news. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if my joy is found in God, and he does not change, then my joy is not altered. But if my joy and my happiness, more correctly, are focused on circumstances, then it will alter according to the circumstances. And that's the way, you remember those were, you know, Jesus talked about the same thing with our peace. All of the things that we're longing for, if they are rooted in God, changing circumstances will not alter them. And just so you know, I'm preaching it myself right now because I find far too often my tendency is to focus them on other things and to find my joy in other things. Secondly, joy endures through suffering because we not only have it focused on God, but we know that God works in all things for our good. Paul here is kind of setting up and he's going to talk about sanctification and the difficulty and even going through glorification, even possibly heading towards death. And he starts summing all this up in Romans 8, 28, in the famous verse, and he says, and we know that in how many things? All things. God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Paul says it does not matter what your circumstances are, you can know this. God is at work. And he says, here's my plan of action for the day. I'm working good for you. Whatever else is going on, I have a purpose, and that purpose is good for you. If you and I think about that, it can't help but produce joy. Even if somebody is your enemy, or they are mine, and they are actively trying to do something evil to you, all they can do in the end is do something that God will work for your good. He is the filter through which every action is going to go and every activity will work for your good. If not in the present moment in eternity when you will bear a greater weight of glory for having borne through the suffering. There is nothing anyone can do that will not work to your good because that is God's promise to you and me. That can't help but produce joy. And then finally, we know that God uses our suffering to improve our character and help us become more like Christ. That's where he says, because suffering produces perseverance. And he's starting a chain here. And that leads to the fourth thing about joy, which is joy longs to be like Christ. Because joy is God-centered and is the fruit of the gospel, and it's enduring even through suffering, it's because it knows, well, suffering's actually making me more like Jesus. And that's my goal. I want to be like him. Notice Verses three and four, that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, 
hope. And remember, we were hoping in the glory of God back at the beginning of this chain. And so Paul is saying that suffering produces deep character in us. This is not a popular message. This is another paradox. Please hear me. Are any of us signing up for suffering? No. There's, there's something wrong with you if you are, okay? This is not, I'm going to go out and do something to really suffer this afternoon. But there's a hope in our suffering because it does form our character. The fact is, if you look back on your life, you are usually not growing in character in the good times. Nor am I. We are, we are often not overcoming in our struggle against sin in the good times. It's usually in the times that we did not like. And when we recognize that, we can then have joy in the midst of it. Because this character that is being formed is Christ-likeness. It's making us to be more like Jesus. And the hope that we've got at the end is we want to be like him. We want to say we are fully formed and fashioned and we are like Christ. And so that's the hope that we're wanting to have, the hope that we're wanting to bear. And so joy longs to be like Christ and says, I would even make suffering if it means I'll be more like him because he's the perfect image of our humanity. If you're a human being and you want to know how to have joy, you want to be like Jesus because he's the only perfect human being who, by the way, we're told in Hebrews, I won't put this up, but you remember we're told who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now, no matter what suffering you are going to do this week, let me put a limit on it. It will not be bearing the eternal wrath of God for the sinfulness of all humanity. In fact, it's not even going to get close to that. Okay? And yet Jesus, we're told, endured that with joy for what was set before him. And so if that is how the perfect God-man is, the perfect human being, the one who uh, uniquely fulfills the image of God as a human being and is all that we were made to be, even if there's suffering involved, if it means I'm more like him, it's increasing my capacity for joy. Sin always diminishes your capacity for joy and mine. And Jesus is the only one without sin. And so the more our character becomes like him, the more capacity we have for joy and the more experience of joy there is. Secondly, as we cultivate godly character, we grow increasingly free of the power of joy-draining sin. The more like Jesus I am, the less I'm walking under the domination and power of sin. And sin always, see, th this is the great lie. We always think sin's gonna give us joy. That's why we do it. Whatever the sin is, if it's greed, I think if I get that trinket, that's going to make me really happy. If it's anger, it's if I can just holler loud enough, these people will snap into line and do what I want, and that will make me happy. If it's envy, it's if I could just have or be like that person, I would be happy. And the reality is it always promises joy, and what it's actually doing is pulling the plug and draining joy. And it always, and if you just do a little bit more of it, you'll finally get the joy. And the more we do it, the more it drains away. And so 
the more I become like Christ, the more I'm free from that. And again, there's greater capacity for me to actually experience the joy of God. And there's less of that which is draining away the joy of God. And this leads to the final point, And then we'll go into applying the word which is that joy grows as we experience God's love personally. The reason I call this enjoying God is, I wanna be very clear on this, this is not about an intellectual exercise. We experience joy as we enjoy God, as we personally experience God. Notice in verse five, hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Notice Paul doesn't say, and the reason for all of this is because you now understand my Pauline philosophy. Why is this true? Because God is pouring his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit who is given to you and who now dwells in you. He couldn't get more personally, relationally, experiential in his terms. And he says, this is why you've got the hope. This is why the root of all of this is there is because of the personal experience in God. Joy is rooted in proper thought, but it doesn't stop there, okay? Error is never the path to true joy. So if we buy into the error that if I just focus on myself, I'll find joy, that's a sure way to lose joy. But knowing that a focus on God would be the path to joy is not going to sustain joy. Only actually experiencing a life that is focused upon God and his love is being poured out into my heart and I'm experiencing fellowship with him, that's what brings and sustains joy. It is the actual experience of knowing and loving and serving God. So for joy to take root and grow, we must personally, regularly experience God's love in our hearts as we walk in the Holy Spirit. If what I'm saying is, you know, I remember in 1982, I experienced God's love. And so I'm just full of joy because of that. No, no, you're not. It's the regular walking in the Holy Spirit, the regular reception of the love of God and me loving God back. We love him because he first loved us. As God's love is poured into our heart and we return that love to him, it increases joy in you and me. So Joy grows as we experience God personally because God's a relational person. This is not an idea. We're, we're not, you know, trying to buy into some of the Greek philosophers had kind of, you know, God is out there and he, he's more of an idea than he is a person. But the biblical idea is no, God is a person. He actually is relatable. And so we're not relating to an idea, but rather a person. And we were created with a deep need and desire to experience communion with the Trinity. We weren't created with the need to be able to write a book about all of this. We were created to actually experience that communion. God, as it were, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, were always in relationship. The thing that we will never fully grasp is out of that love, and out of that overflowing glory came creation. And at the center of that were you and I as image bearers of God. And we are uniquely invited in to God's relationship. Uniquely. And it stamps our very being. And so only as we actually experience that, not just read about it, talk about it, check off a mental checklist that, yeah, I think that, but actually experience it in the depth of our soul, that's when our soul says, 
That's joy. That's what I was made for. And it's also the greatest glory to God. If I can quote John Piper, a, a good phrase to, to capture this idea is God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. What really brings God glory is a person who, to use the phrase we've been using the last month, says, you are not only necessary, you are sufficient. You are all I need. My deepest hope, my deepest longing, what I desire more than everything else is you. And if I have you, nothing else on earth. This is the psalmist cry, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing I desire you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my joy forever. When, when a soul does that, God says, that's when I'm most glorified. More than all the universe, obeying his every command, more than the sun rising and setting tomorrow and all the other things that are going on, when there is a soul that is satisfied in him, and says, you're not just necessary, you are sufficient. God is glorified. Now, what does that mean for us? How do we apply this? Uh, there, are, there are actually just two questions. Number one, do I see this paradox that focusing on God brings me joy? Now again, this runs counter to our initial inclinations. That's why I'm saying it's a paradox. It's not the way we think. But if we focus on our own joy, we lose it. I've used the analogy before. I used to, when I would help Marines uh, down at the rifle range, you could tell when they were focusing on the target rather than focusing on the front sight post because your eyes can't focus on two things at once. And if they put their focus on the target down range and not the front sight post, they would miss the target. But if they put their focus on the front sight post and the target was kind of blurry and back there, they'd hit it every time. But it's hard because where do I want to look? I want to look at what I'm trying to hit, okay? But if you and I are focused on ourselves and our own things, we end up missing joy. But see, today, if there's ever been a culture, Narcissus was a tale by the Greeks to say, don't be excessively self-focused. He was not a hero. He was a fool in the story. But we've made him a hero. We build an entire culture on it. I mean, that's what we do. I, I sat at a, at a baseball game last year. Linda and I went uh, down to watch the Nationals, and we were down in some really nice seats. It was, it was really great, and we were down there, and there were two young women sat next to us, and in an hour and a half, they didn't watch a pitch of the game, not one. They took more selfies, and the funny thing was they didn't even turn around and get the field in there. They could have been sitting in their living room for all that mattered. It was just selfie, look at themselves, post something, work on their hair, order another beer, and more selfies. And this went on, and it got so annoying, all the people behind them started photobombing them, all the older people. And Linda hadn't noticed it, and I finally leaned over and said, they are driving me nuts. And I swore when they left, there was no question they did not know who was ahead or what the score was. I was willing to bet they could not have named the team the Nationals were playing because they had, they had no interest in the game because though we were there to watch this game and watch these highly trained athletes do all of this, all they were interested in was themselves. 
But that's our culture. That's what we've been taught is the way forward, the way to joy. It is the, the reason that many Christians today embrace a false prosperity gospel that makes us the center of everything. And all God is doing is sitting around like a divine bellhop just waiting to give me everything I could want and every whim I have and remove any suffering from my life and then wonder why I'm not much like Jesus. But that's why we bought into that even in the church because we don't realize Narcissus is not a hero. He's a fool. And that's not the path to true fulfillment. So, do we recognize that we live in a God-centered universe and we die in a God-centered universe and joy comes from that recognition? Do I recognize the paradox that my focus has to lie on pleasing God rather than myself? And which really is my focus? And it's, the reality is we go back and forth. We peg on this, okay? We, we waver. But where's my focus going? Another question on this one, and then we'll move to the next one. Do I understand the attempt to live for myself is destined to drain away my own joy? Because I'm asking, do we, do we get this paradox? That the more I try to accrue to myself, the emptier I actually become. The more I try to focus on myself, the less I'm able, I, my capacity for joy actually shrinks. C.S. Lewis, if you ever read The Great Divorce, has got a, a great way of picturing this as there are souls and they're, they're unable. He's kind of taking his uh, book, The Weight of Glory. As I mentioned last week, the word glory actually means weight. And in Lewis's kind of picture there, when the souls are initially even trying to get to heaven, we're so weightless, we're so inconsequential that even blades of grass are like knives we're walking on because we can't bear the weight of glory. Well, what I'm asking and what I'm saying is the more focused we are on ourselves, the more inconsequential we become and the less capacity we have to actually experience joy. And the ultimate end of a life of self-focus is you couldn't experience the joy and the glory of God no matter what. We would be incapable. So, do I recognize that paradox? Please, it's so important because we're going to go right back out here and you are going to be told all day in every way the path to joy is a life of self-focus. That's what our culture is built. Do we realize that's wrong? Second question, am I stirring up a passion for the God of glory? Do I regularly behold God in all his glory? Now I want to, the, the focus and what I'm trying to encourage you for this morning is not go out and stir up passion for God because that's what we oftentimes do, but that's the wrong way. What's the best way to get you to feel awe at the Grand Canyon? Is it to tell you, feel awe at the Grand Canyon? Or is it just to show you the Grand Canyon? Which produces awe? See, there's nothing like when we crested the hill a few years ago and we did it, even though I'd seen a thousand pictures, my jaw hit the floor and you just look stupid for a few minutes because you can't believe how immense it is. I didn't need anybody to tell me, isn't that impressive? Don't you think that's impressive? You should say that's impressive. All I had to do was look at it. Too often today what we do is we try and stir these things up and what we need to do is we just need to behold God. When you see God... 
There is a longing and a desire for him. There is a desire to praise him. There is a recognition that that's the source of joy. So this is not a call. My question is not, are you stirring up your passion? My question is, how often are we beholding God? Because if we are beholding God, it will have the effect of stirring up passion for him. But many sermons to say, stir up your passion for God won't have that effect, nor will many songs. And we do a lot of singing about that today. But what we really need to do is behold God. So that leads to the second and final question, and we'll close. Do I regularly put myself in a place to experience God and his loving glory? Do I put myself in that place? Because I could say, I really need to have awe at the Grand Canyon. And then you say, well, how often do you go to the Grand Canyon? Or how often do you look at pictures of it? Well, never. But I'm working on getting awe at it. Well, that makes no sense. Okay? So the same thing here. How often am I putting myself in the place where I could behold God and his glory? This isn't a matter, again, of intellectual assent. We're meant to experience the joy of beholding, knowing, and worshiping God. John, remember in 1 John 3, says, you know, that we don't know everything, but we know this. When we see him, we're going to be like him because we're going to see him as he is. And when you, when you realize that, John says, you start purifying yourself even now. I start saying, I, I want that capacity to behold and experience God. There is something about beholding him. That is what we are longing for and what we are called to. So we're not talking about intellectual assent. This is why when you think about things like daily Bible reading, the reason we read the scripture is not to check off a list. It's not so that I can get justified. It's not so that God will not be angry and therefore give me a flat tire on the way to work or any of that. It's because as I read and meditate upon scripture, I behold God. And my soul tastes and sees that the Lord is good. And so if I want joy, I do that which will increase my capacity and bring me joy. And that's by beholding God in the Word. So don't read the Word because it's your religious exercise and you just have to do it. I mean, there are days where I don't feel like it and I press through, but I'm pressing through because I know the ultimate goal and what I'm really longing is not to check off my list, but to say, I wanna see God and this is where he is seen. And it's why we pray. It's why we talk about it. Again, it's not just to go through an exercise, but it's to commune with God, to talk to our Father, and to let our Father talk to us. And as we do, our soul expands. Its capacity to see and behold and enjoy God expands. It's why we gather with God's people for worship. It's why I gather week after week after week after week. Is because there's something about being together and worshiping God and experiencing God's presence together that fills me with joy. And it does the same thing for you. So am I regularly doing that? Not again because something bad's gonna happen, but because do I want joy? It's why we fellowship together, to point each other to the glorious love of God. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to stir this up. Now, let me give one last example and we'll close, which is I want to encourage you to regularly do this. One of the things I don't understand about human beings 
is the way we don't take advantage of great things around us. We, we don't live in them. And let me give an example. I love living in Annapolis. This is a great place. I mean, it is beautiful. And do you realize there are people take vacations, pay money, and they come here to be part of Annapolis. Now, I'm going to give you two choices. Do, do they do that so they can drive down Route 50 by the penitentiary or to go down to like the historic district? Which of those two do you think they're here for? Yeah. Obviously, it's the historic district. So when I come here, when I drive from our house to the church, I don't drive down Route 50. I drive down by the docks because it reminds me regularly what a great place to live. I mean, God could have called me to Akron, Ohio, but not that, if anybody's listening in Akron, not that it's necessarily a terrible place, I just don't know any reason I want to go there. I don't understand why people don't experience it and don't enjoy it. All it takes is just being there. Linda and I, the other day, we had some free time, so we just went downtown just to walk around and enjoy how beautiful it was. There were all of these school kids that had come down and done it. But the reality is a lot of people around here never do it and then wonder why they're not really enjoying the place. What I'm saying is, is the same way. Don't cruise by your Bible. Don't, don't go down Route 50 and skip by it. Enjoy what God has offered to you. It's available every single day. And I want to tell you, I never, Linda laughs at me, I never get tired of driving to Annapolis. I will occasionally, one of our jokes is, have I ever told you I like living here? And she's like, no, I've never heard that before. When we used to visit Colorado, I never got tired of looking at Pikes Peak. Never. It's incredible. God's way more incredible than Pikes Peak or Annapolis. You will never tire of seeing and knowing God. You will never tire of communing with Him. But the problem is, too often we make the choice in the morning to cruise down Route 50 and look at the penitentiary instead of driving and enjoying what's actually here for us. Don't do that. Enjoy God. It's what you were made for. Let's stand together and we'll conclude with prayer and a word of benediction. Father, I pray this morning that my faltering attempt has been helpful. Father, I pray that we would leave with more understanding of this paradox. But Father, even more importantly, Father, with a heart set I'm beholding you and your glory. Father, I pray this week we would not drive down the ugly road, but we, we would go and we'd behold you in your glory. Father, I pray we would not stuff our soul with junk food, but we would feast upon you and your glory and your presence. And Father, I pray for every one of us. As we open your word this week, Father, I pray that your voice would be near and you would speak. Father, I pray as we spend time in prayer, both talking and just listening, Father, I pray our souls would commune with you. Father, as we gather in worship, as we fellowship with one another, I pray we would be able to behold you. And Father, I pray in doing that, you would increase not only our immediate joy, but even our capacity to experience joy. Father, if, if, 
We got a cup that is a pint and overflowing. I pray you'd increase it to a quart. If it's a quart, I pray you'd make it a gallon, Lord. Whatever metaphor we want, Father, I pray you would increase our capacity that we could know you more deeply, we could love you more passionately, that we could desire you more earnestly and consistently than we ever have before. Father, would you work and do all of this for your glory and for our good and joy. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, go in joy. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.